you guys. Grab your Bibles. You, we went to the passage earlier, but it's uh, Exodus chapter 24, Exodus chapter 24. Before we get into that, uh, just as far as our ministry goes, as far as our ministry to Vermont, um, just, uh, I, I, and I know I just told you to turn to Exodus 24. Go ahead and flip to Exodus 19, though. Exodus 19, we'll begin there, we'll wind up in Exodus 24, uh, but flip over to Exodus 19. When, uh, before I dig into the scripture today and we dive into the message, just wanted to say one other thing a little bit about as far as the ministry goes as we're starting this church up in Vermont. Uh, we mentioned it this morning, uh, Burlington, Vermont, and I, you know, I know you heard me say this already, but it is not per se the ideal place to start a church from a lot of standpoints. And I know that uh, I remember talking to a friend of mine back when uh, my friend was telling me that the Lord was laying it on his heart, or he thought at the time, he didn't wind up doing this, but at the time he thought the Lord was laying it on his heart to start a church in California. And he said, uh, you know, I'm really excited, blah, blah, blah. He was explaining his, his burden for this, uh, this area in California. And he said, uh, I could just never picture myself going to New England, he said, to start a church. Uh, he said, because it's so dead, all of the people have already heard the gospel and rejected it, was his comment. The thought being, the thought being that, uh, you know, if you rewound this nation's history back to the 1700s and 1800s, this area used to be almost like the Bible Belt of the United States, if you will. Uh, there were revivals that began uh, back in the 1700s. Down, I'm, in, I'm from Connecticut. Uh, Enfield, Connecticut was the place where a great sermon was preached that uh, transformed our nation. It was the beginning of a movement that transformed our nation back before we were even uh, our own country yet. Uh, if you got into the 1800s, there was a guy named, uh, there, were, there were all kinds of people. There was what they call the Second Great Awakening, uh, and that had some roots here in the New England area. Uh, there was a guy named Jedediah Burcham. He traveled all through the state of Vermont. He preached many times up in the Burlington area. You can find publications that talk about that revival, secular publications that say everything changed in the state of Vermont uh, in the 1800s when this guy Jedediah Burcham was traveling throughout New England. My friend's comment was the gospel has already been to New England and it's just kind of, that's, that's, that's they've already rejected it. Church, what I've realized over time, though, especially having moved here a few years back, most of the people that we come into contact here in New England who aren't saved, they've never actually heard the gospel. Yeah. You say, what do you mean by that? They've driven past churches that had a cross in front of it, and they've seen crucifixes, and they've heard the name Jesus, and they've heard terminology tossed around, but nobody's ever actually sat down with them and said, this is who Jesus is, and he desires to have a relationship with you. That is something that most of the people in New England have never heard. So when we, when we talk about how, how lost our region sometimes maybe feels like it is, maybe even here in Maine, how just it seems like the, the, the country, the region is going down the tubes, most of the people haven't rejected Christ. They've just never actually heard who Christ truly is. There's an opportunity. There's a huge lane here in our country to just 
get out the story of the gospel and to show people that there's a Jesus out there who cares about them, who loves them, and who died for them. Uh, so all that being said, there is hope, church. There is hope because everywhere where there's a broken, hurting heart, there's a need for Jesus. And we have that Jesus, and we can give them to these people. Um, I'll say this. I'll say this. In Vermont, the dynamic of the area, the dynamic of Burlington specifically, I mentioned it this morning, is that there have been a lot of churches in the area, more what we would consider mainline denominations, if you've heard that term before, uh, that aren't really doing a whole lot. They're not really preaching the gospel, at least not as we understand the gospel to be. Uh, And what I saw, and I'll tell you this quick story, church, and then we'll get into the message. When I was praying over Vermont, God had not shown us yet that that was where we were supposed to be. I was praying over the city, and I said, God, uh, well, actually, no, let me take, I take that back. We had realized that we were supposed to go to Burlington. We knew that. We just hadn't announced it yet. One of the things I started doing is subscribing to Vermont news publications up in the area just to keep up with what's going on in the state. And one day, it was super early in the morning, I was scrolling through Facebook, and I saw an article, and it stopped me dead in my tracks. It was from a secular Vermont publication, and the whole gist of the article was that churches, not necessarily like you and, I, you and me, not necessarily our type of church, but that churches had started in Vermont the last couple of years and had done well. And the whole point of the article was that there was a group of people out there that were hungry and searching up in Vermont. This is a secular news article that was saying this, that was acknowledging the fact that there is, and they interviewed the pastor of one of the churches in the city, and she said that we have been preaching uh, a gospel that was empty of really anything for these people, the people around us, especially the young people of Vermont today, they've, we've been so secular for so long that it's almost like they're ready for something. I saw that article and that just brought me to tears because God is going to do something. I know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know that God could call us up and we might wind up, you know, I understand how church planning goes. I've seen it done. I've watched other guys do it. It can be slow going. It can be tough. I completely understand that. But I know that God's got something planned here. Uh, God's going to do something and I'm excited about that. Pray for us. Pray for our ministry. And uh, like I said, it's just, uh, I know he's doing something. I know the Lord's doing something, so pray for us. We're in Exodus chapter 19 is where we're going to start. I'm going to pray real fast, uh, and then we'll dive into the scripture today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day. God, I pray that you would uh, give us exactly what we stand in need of this afternoon. I thank you for the good services this morning. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that Jesus really is the only hope for this country. Jesus is the only hope for our hearts as well. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to really internalize that, and Lord, that we would be quick to preach the gospel to the lost around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is not, the message I'm about to preach tonight is not per se a stereotypical missionary church planner comes into a church and preaches a message like this. But I also know what your situation is. You guys just came off a week of revival. And the Lord showed me something one time out of the passages that we're going to look at tonight that, again, 
again, not stereotypical missionary message, but I wanted to give this to you because I feel the Lord wanted me to give this to you. Let me say it that way, because there's something here that I feel benefits any church that just came off revival or that's thinking about revival. Now, if you are like me, and I told you this morning, I'm 29 years old. When I was 10 years old, and I mentioned this already, 9-11 happened when I was 10. And I remember distinctly that the day after 9-11, 9-11 was a Tuesday. The day after 9-11 was a Wednesday, and the church was full. People were coming from all over, the lost, the saved. They were all coming, and they wanted to, they wanted to worship. They wanted answers. They wanted to pray. Everybody was excited about the gospel. Everybody was excited about, uh, well, I shouldn't say excited. They were desperate is the better word for it. They were desperate. And here we were right after 9-11, and everybody's desperate. And I, can't rem- I can remember to this day both my mom, my pastor, multiple people saying this, maybe now is the time when we see revival. That was, 10 years, that was almost 20 years ago now. And I remember not long after that was the uh, Iraq War. And things got really dark in our country for a little while there. And I remember multiple people saying, in the middle of all this darkness, maybe now is the time that we see revival. And that was about 15 years ago. And then I remember uh, the Great Recession happening. Uh, that financially had a massive impact on a lot of families, my family included. I remember that taking place. And I remember in the middle of all that hearing people say, maybe now is the time where our country sees revival. That was about 12 years ago. And then over the course of the last decade, events would take place, and everybody was always saying, maybe now is when our nation sees revival. Maybe now is the time that we actually see revival take place. So, if you're anything like me, the term revival keeps getting tossed out, and it's almost like white noise. It's almost like something that people talk about, but it doesn't actually happen, is kind of the way it starts to feel sometimes. And you say, what stops true revival from taking place? Now, again, you guys just came off of uh, several days' worth of meetings. You've heard tons of preaching about revival. I'm not going to dig too terribly deep into any of that stuff. What I want to talk about, though, is a story in the Bible where it looked like they were about to see revival, and then they didn't. And what was it that stopped the people in our story from seeing revival? I want to look at that here in the scriptures. And I believe that if we understand what it was that kept the people in our story back from revival, that will help us understand one of the things that can keep us from revival. All right, we're in Exodus chapter 19. Now, we're going to dive straight into this. Before we do, though, let me just say that in Exodus chapter 15, church, in Exodus chapter 15, uh, actually Exodus chapter 14, that's when God had led the children of Israel uh, through the Red Sea on dry ground over to, the, uh, over to the land beyond. In Exodus chapter 15, the scriptures give us stories about the children of Israel as they're headed eastward, as they're headed towards the promised land. Again, the setting of this story is right after uh, the miracle of the Red Sea. The children of Israel, they're headed eastward, and they run into problems. They, they run into an area where there was no water. There was no good water, I should say. They called that land Mara. God gave them fresh water. That's Exodus chapter 15. 
Exodus chapter 16, the children of Israel, uh, they're in the wilderness of sin. That's the first, Exodus chapter 16, in the wilderness of sin, it's the first time we see manna mentioned. The children of Israel feast on the manna that God provides for them when they had nothing to eat. In Exodus chapter 17, they're again in need of water. Uh, that's when Moses takes the rod. He was supposed to do it this way, by the, by, by, by the way. He grabbed the rod and he hit the rock the way God had commanded to him at the time. Water came gushing out of the rock, and God provided for the children of Israel. Uh, they also achieved victory over this guy Amalek who had come up to attack them. Exodus chapter 18. Uh, Moses received some uh, counsel from his father-in-law explaining how it would be a better way to lay out the government of, of the people, the, uh, the best possible way to move forward. Church, let me say this about the children of Israel. As we, that was Exodus chapter 18, then we get to Exodus chapter 19. In every story that I just referenced, church, God had taken care of the people of Israel. And church, can I ask you this? Has God taken care of us? Has he blessed us every time we've had need? Has, is it true, is the psalmist true, right, when he said that he has never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread? God has taken care of us any time we had need. There may have been times where we were hungry, but God fed us. There may have been times where we were thirsty, but God provided us water. There may have been times where we were in great need, financial need, things like that, but here we are right? We're all here, sitting here. We just went through one of the weirdest stretches of time in our nation's history, but we're sitting here. We're okay. Maybe some of us went through some financial trouble. Maybe some of us had some issues at work, but God has blessed us. God has taken care of us every step of the way, and here we are. And God has been good to us. God was good to the children of Israel back in this time period. And you say, what what happens next? Exodus chapter 19. Here we are in the middle of all of God's blessings. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, God tells Moses that he wants to put his hand on the children of Israel. Exodus 19, look at verse 3. The scriptures say, And Moses went up unto God, uh, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. Pause, by the way. Look back at verses one, uh, verse uh, yeah, 1. It says in Exodus 19, 1, In the third month when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt. In other words, they've been gone from Egypt for three months. The same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. So that's the mount that's referenced there. God comes to Moses here in the next few verses. Verse 4, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Verse 5, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed... And keep my covenant, if you will live holy lives and follow what I say, God tells them, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses went back and he told the children of Israel all that. I hope you don't mind, we're going to be in a lot of scripture tonight. If you keep reading down through this story, look at verse 8. I want us to see this. The Bible says, 
And all the people answered together and said, notice this next phrase, church, notice it. All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. Church, how many times have we said that? How many times have you and I personally said that? We've come to a service and we've heard a great message or we went to a tent and we heard a great message and we walked out and said, whatever it is God wants me to do, all that the Lord hath spoken, will we do? We've all done it. We've all said it. And by the way, church, if we had followed through on that, wouldn't we have seen revival, right? Personally, anyways, if we had followed through on it? Yeah. Church, let me ask you, does what they are saying here sound like it could be the beginning of a revival? Yes. The children of Israel, they say, all that the Lord hath spoken, will we do? They say the right things. They're on the right track. I, by the way, when I read this story, I believe that they meant it. I think they meant it when they said they wanted to do everything God wanted them to do. If we keep reading... Look down at verse 10, verse 10 of chapter 19. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. If you know what the word sanctify means, it means to make pure. We are, as Christians, we are told to, uh, not, by the way, out of, out of our own power or in, in our own strength, but we are told to become, to be sanctified, to grow in our walk with God, to become pure, to become holy. Through the grace of Jesus, we can become holy. We're told to sanctify, be, become sanctified. That's what that word means, to become pure. It says, sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. God's saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to visit you and I'm going to speak to you. Now, that's in verses 10 through 14. And again, church, doesn't that sound like revival? Doesn't that sound like God is going to use these people and God's going to speak to these people and something amazing is about to happen? It sounds that way. But if we keep reading, uh, look down at verse, uh, look down at verse, uh, let's go to 16. It says in verse 16, and it came to pass on the third day in the morning, that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Pause. Think about that, church. Visualize this. Thunder, lightning. In the middle of this thunder and lightning, it says a thick cloud came down upon the mountain. Remember, they're camped at the foot of the mountain. So they are looking up at the mountain that's right in front of them, watching thunder, uh, hearing thunder, watching the lightning, seeing this cloud descend down on top of the mountain. That is a mental picture that's fascinating to me. In the middle of all that, it says there was a voice of a trumpet it's one thing to hear the sound of a trumpet when there's a guy standing there holding a trumpet. It's a completely different thing to be standing at the foot of a mountain, watching a cloud descend upon it, watching the lightning, hearing the thunder, and then all of a sudden there's this loud thundering trumpet sound. That would make me shake in my shoes if I was anything like most of you guys probably are, and if that was, I was like anything, anything like the people of Israel were. You say... If I saw God's power 
coming down in such a dramatic fashion, that would guarantee that I would understand that this was really the Lord and I would just want to live a holy life because I would realize that God is true and God is real and God is powerful and God is strong. I would do that because, no, that's not what happens with the children of Israel. We're going to keep reading. But in verses, chapters 20, 21, 22, 23... Those three ch- in those four chapters, 20 through 23, uh, in those, God begins to give Moses some commandments that the children of Israel were supposed to follow. Uh, God gave them the Ten Commandments in that passage of Scripture. And then we get to Exodus chapter 24, which is where we read our passage earlier, to, earlier this morning, uh, earlier this afternoon. Exodus 24, look at verse 3. So, just to recap before we look at verse 3. You have the children of Israel, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, God comes down and he says, I'm going to give you some commandments. Moses goes back to the people, he says, God's going to give us commandments. The people say, all that the Lord hath spoken will we do. Exodus chapter, uh, uh, later on in Exodus chapter 19, God comes down in dramatic fashion Moses goes up into the mountain, he gets some commandments from God, and now back in Exodus chapter 24, Moses is back down with the people, and he's speaking to the people. Verse 3, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments, and all of the people answered with one voice, and said, notice this church, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. Church, does that sound like revival? Same as before. All that the Lord hath said will we do. Look at the next verse. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. So in verse 3, they're all saying, all that the Lord hath said will we do. In the next few verses, they're worshiping. They're sacrificing to the Lord. So we see, we see people who say that they want to follow the Lord in holiness. We see people who are worshiping the Lord. We see people who, by all accounts, by anybody's standards, look like they're on track to see revival. Right, church? But look what keeps happening. It says, verse, five, verse 6, And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Verse 7, And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, what? All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. Church, one more time, does that sound like the beginnings of revival? Everything we're seeing up to this point looks like a group of people that want to have revival. And then what happens in the next few verses, what takes place over the next few verses, in verses 4 through 8, we'll call that the children of Israel's revival, or what looks like it. And then in verses 15 and 16, God calls Moses up to the foot of the hills, uh, and he has him stay there for six days, verses 15 and 16. So six days pass. In verses 16 and 18, on the seventh day, after uh, a 40-day cycle began in which Moses went up to the top of the mountain and received the words of the Lord. Moses was up on this mountain now for 40 days and 40 nights. This 40-day 40 40 cycle began. 
So Moses is gone for five, for six days. He's up in the mountain for 40 days. The day before he comes back, we see the events of Exodus chapter 32. Go ahead and look over at Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus chapters 25, all the way up through 31, God's giving Moses instruction up there on the mountain. God's giving Moses instruction up there on the mountain. And church, up to this point, this story, and really the message today is one story and one point. And the story up to this point has been a story of revival. But here we are in Exodus chapter 32, 45 days after revival. 45 days after revival, church. It's all good to stand at a place and say, all that the Lord has said will we do. And it's great to follow that up with worship. But the children of Israel, 45 days later, we see what happens in Exodus chapter 32. Up to this point, it's been a story of revival. Now it becomes a story of rebellion. Exodus 32, look at verse 1. It says, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the same people that said, All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. These same people saw that Moses was still up on the mount. It says, The people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. These same people, church, the exact same people, that it said, all that the Lord has said will we do. Whatever God wants out of us, we're going to do it. In fact, we're going to hold sacrifices within our land to affirm that. Those same people, 45 days later, are worshiping a piece of metal. How does that happen? And I've heard this story many, many times. And I've heard people even use this story as an illustration of the fact that it so often seems that we're just like that. Doesn't it, church? We'll have these great moments. We'll have these great services in the house of God. We'll come here. We'll have a revival. We'll hold revival. We'll do whatever. But here we are, worshiping the Lord and saying, God, I need to get my life right through the power of Jesus. I want to do that. I want to see my life transformed. I want to be a holy person. By the way, church, we also want to see our nation become a holy nation. And church, we get so passionate about it, and then we fall right back into the same thing. You say, I told you it's a story and one point. Well, that's a story. Here's the point. Look at, as we go through Exodus 32, there's some explanations of what takes place. God literally says exactly what the children of Israel's problem was. He doesn't just toss out something or make a general reference. God specifically 
tells us and tells Moses the reason that the children of Israel got themselves into this mess. God tells us exactly why 45 days after revival, the children of Israel were right back to the same old ways. Let's look at it. Exodus chapter 32. Look at verse, uh, let's see, let's look at verse, um, let's actually look at verse Exodus 32, not 7. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down. For thy people, which thou broughtest up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Church, we're really going through this story. Moses is still up on the top of the mountain. God says, leave the top of the mountain. Go back down to your people, because in the 45 days since they saw revival, uh, corruption has broken out. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a... Church, what's that next word? Stiff-necked people. So, well, that's an interesting point. And it's interesting that God calls them that, but does that really mean a whole lot? Church, keep reading. Look over at Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 1, Depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. Verse 2, And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Hevite, and the Jebusite unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I wilt not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a, what's the next word, church? Stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. Exodus chapter 33, look down at verse 5. For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. Church, are we seeing that word getting used over and over and over again? It sounds like the diagnosis to the problem is this. Keep reading. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Look at verse 9. It says, and uh, Moses is talking, verse 9, and he said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take for us thine inheritance. That word, church, stiff-necked, has now been used, I believe, six times. Over and over and over again. It wasn't so, by the way, when God repeats a word, it's typically because he's trying to get our attention with that word. When he says, I have seen these people, they are a stiff-necked people. Church, that word, stiff-necked, means stubborn. Now let me pause for just a second. Let me pause for just a second. My wife and I joke around all the time. We have a kid that we are expecting in January. And we have talked that we are in for it. Because I'm a stubborn person, and she's a stubborn person, and we can only imagine what it's going to be like when we have a child. And we joke about that 
But you know what God told me one time? That's not half as funny as we make it out to be. And I've seen Facebook quizzes and Facebook comments that people make where they say, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, who is... Who is a bigger eater, him or her? Or who is, you know, uh, more prone to watch TV, him or her? Or who's more stubborn, him or her? And, uh, and it's, it's a couple's quiz that they'll do. And people will put down, I am, or she is. Ha, 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 isn't that funny? We're stubborn people. Or people will say, I'm just a stubborn guy. I'm just, that's how I am. That's who I am. We'll laugh about it. But God says that's why the children of Israel were having a hard time seeing revival. Because they were stiff-necked, they were stubborn. Church, some people are very physically expressive. My mom is one of those people. I can, it's not just because I'm her son. It's that anybody can look at my mom and within seconds know exactly what her emotion at the time is. If she's irritated, you know what she does? She kind of bristles. And you know what you do when you bristle? You stiffen up that neck. That's the idea. That's the picture that's being presented to us here. Somebody who's stiff-necked, somebody who's getting stubborn, who's getting an attitude. Grab your Bibles. I want everybody to see this. We've been in Exodus this whole time, and we're mostly just in Exodus today. But flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you look at the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15, there's a very familiar verse here. 1 Samuel chapter 15, there's a reference being made in 1 Samuel 15 to Saul. It says in verse 22, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft... Church, I've heard that verse preached on all the time. I was a teenager hearing about it constantly. If you're a rebellious teen, it's the same thing as if you're in witchcraft in God's eyes. I've heard that preached a million times, but look at the very next phrase. It says, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Church, I understand, and I don't blame you at all, if this is a tough pill to swallow, because this is one of my greatest struggles. And if we were to all be honest, we would probably all say the same thing. But what I want us to start with, church, is just acknowledging what the Bible says about stubbornness. It's not funny. It's not just the defining element of our personality traits. It's something that is as bad as iniquity and idolatry And it's what kept the people of Israel from seeing lasting revival. That's it. The scriptures give it to us. God says it. Say, iniquity and idolatry, those are interesting comparisons. Why would God compare stubbornness to idolatry? We make idols of our own opinions. We make idols out of what we think. And I'm not just, by the way, talking about scriptural things. I'm talking about anything. The problem with stubbornness is that we set up our own thought processes, opinions, and actions 
above everyone or everything that God might be trying to use to get our attention. No, I, I'm not going to listen to that person because I've got my own way kind of settled in my own mind. I'm set. That's making an idol out of our own thoughts. That's making an idol out of our own opinions. And you say, that's not such a big deal. That's okay, church. That's pride. The scriptures say in, in Proverbs, it says, Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goeth before destruction, and in haughty spirit before a fall. The children of Israel here in Exodus 32, that was a fall. If you read on to see what kept happening, people died. That sounds like a fall. You know what happened before then? Pride and their stubbornness and their stiff-necked attitudes got in the way. Proverbs 30, verse 12 through 13, there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. They said there's a generation out there that doesn't want to listen to truth. Church, is that our generation today? Absolutely it is. We are living in a generation today. I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and I'm not going to get off on public policy or anything like that, politics, anything like that. But we live in a generation that's not really super interested in facts. <laughs> we live in a generation that's not super interested in truth. You know where that comes from, church? It comes from a place I've already got it figured out. I've already got my mind made up. That's a place, church, of stubbornness. And that, the, 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 uh, um, Solomon here, he's saying there's a generation that doesn't want to listen to anybody else, and we always talk about that, and we always emphasize that. That comes from a place of pride. And church, let's be honest, it's not just the young people we look out and see around us. It's you and me. We don't like getting told we're wrong. It's one thing to generically say all that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. It's another thing for us to look at our own life into something that we are actively doing day in and day out and say that's going to change. It's so easy to sit in a tent and say, uh, yeah, whatever the Lord wants out of me, I'm going to do it. Whatever the Lord expects out of me, I want to do it. It's something completely different to break down our stubbornness day in and day out and say, God, I want to be yielded to you. God, I want to listen to you. God, if I'm wrong, show me. Church, I'll, show, I'll, I'll just put, make a few points of application here. There's a chapter of Scripture. There's two ways that our stubbornness can come out. Stubbornness with other people. And church, if I took it, we're not going to, we don't have time to go here, but in Acts chapter 15, if we go to Acts chapter 15, you know what was happening there, church? There was this big argument about theology taking place in the early church. And they're all arguing about whether or not the place of keeping the law, that the place of keeping the law has with the people of, uh, with people who accept the gospel, Gentiles who accept the gospel, they're all arguing about that. And you know what winds up happening? They all come together. They all converge. And there's a ton of preachers that get together. And I know you're not going to believe this, church. But they walk away. They come in arguing, fighting, and mad at each other. 
and they leave peaceful and with their minds changed. Who does that? How does that happen? We don't change our minds. We've already got everything figured out. We've already got our opinions figured out. We have already have our minds made up on something. I had a former student that I taught in college. Uh, I taught at Bible college for a few years. I had a student, though, who graduated. He went off and he became a youth pastor. And I heard this story the other day. He went to a, a pastor, said, hey, come on in and ch check out my church. I might want to hire you on as our youth pastor. He went in. He watched everything. He looked at everything. He sat down with the pastor and he said, you know... I'm really interested in working here. You have a great church. There's just one issue I want to talk to you about, one theology issue I want to run by you that I don't agree with your church on. They sat down and they talked about it for a couple hours. The pastor said, ultimately at the end of this meeting said, you're right. You're right. We're going to do it that way now on. Who does that? Who does that? We're all settled and our minds are made up on everything. This is a guy who said, I'm not going to let stubbornness take root in my life. I'm going to listen to this young man who's way younger than I am sitting across from me because God's showed him something. When we let our stubbornness get in the way, we prevent ourselves from growing. And that was what, and that's really what God's looking at here. He said, revival is not all about big fancy moments. And it's not all about big thundering and lightning moments and clouds descending and trumpets blowing. Revival is about 45 days later. Our stubbornness is sacrificed and yielded to God. And we say, I will do whatever you want, Lord. It's still being yielded 45 days later. It's sacrificing that stubbornness. Stubbornness with other people. And then lastly, stubbornness with God. And church, we'd all say, no, that's not us. We're not stubborn with the Lord. But let me ask you something, church. Do you find yourselves regularly, when the pastor's talking, saying it's okay for him to preach on this, but he'd better not be talking about that. <laughs> if you find yourself saying, he can preach on the goodness of God all the time, and he can preach on the love and goodness and grace and going through a hard time, he can preach on that, but he'd better not start digging in over in this area, that's an example of stubbornness with God. God might be trying to use people to get into your life, even a pastor, to get into your life and say, you need to change something. You need to make something right. We put up our walls, we put up our stubbornness, and we let that get in the way of God making lasting, real changes. Church, let me ask you this. When your preacher talks about prayer, is your stereotypical answer, no, I'm good. I'm good. Or maybe I'll add 30 seconds to my prayer time, but that's about the extent of it. Because if the answer is, I'm good after every message, it probably means we're not letting the Lord work. If every time pastor gets up and he preaches, we just, the end of the message, it's like, no, I'm good, I'm good. We're probably not letting the Lord work. If your pastor gets up and preaches about church attendance, is the answer, I'm good. If the pastor gets up and talks about Bible reading, is the answer, no, I'm good. 
If the pastor gets up and talks about winning our lost coworkers and neighbors and the people around us to Christ and getting involved and going soul winning and trying to reach the lost, if the pastor gets up and talks, by the way, that's a really tough area to let the, our guards down and let the wor- Lord work in our lives. If the pastor talks about that, is our answer just always, no, I'm good? Because if it is, we might be letting stubbornness take root in our life and destroy us. Church, I want to finish this message, and I know this is going to sound kind of odd, but I want us to go with, to a passage, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Church, if you are paying attention, this is the exact same place we ended the message this morning. We talked about how sometimes it's hard to find love for other people. But you know how we find that love if we're struggling? Yielding to the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. That is as close to the opposite of stubbornness as you can possibly get. And you say, I struggle. My personality is such that I am always stubborn in everything I say and do. You understand that the Holy Spirit, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, He has empowered you with everything you need to live the Christian life. That means He has empowered you to live the Christian life in love. He has empowered you to go through your life with joy. Every one of those words that's listed as a fruit of the Spirit, God has enabled you. Anything that you just read that sounds challenging, that sounds difficult, the Scriptures say that's the fruit of the Spirit that already lives in you. All we have to do is yield. And that's a lot easier said than done. But the scriptures tell us that the fruit of the Spirit is, among a lot of other things, meekness. Meekness is the antidote for stubbornness. And if we'll let the Lord work in our lives, He'll make us into meek people. Say, what does that matter? What does that matter? Church, we want God to revive America. And any time I go into a church, I'm just going to be honest with you, any time I go into a church, I could be talking about any topic, and everybody's just kind of like, I start talking about America, and everybody's like, amen! I want to see revival in America. That's everybody's passion, right? We don't need revival in America half as much as we need revival in our own lives. Most people, we want revival, and when we say we want revival, that means we want everybody else getting revived. We want to be around revival when it takes place. We want to be in the same vicinity as revival. But if that revival happens, we don't really actually anticipate anything specifically changing in our lives. Why? Because we've let stubbornness create a wall there. And maybe we'd change something in our lives if it all of a sudden got easier to do. In other words, the whole church is now going out and knocking on doors or passing out tracts. That means there's, there's strength in numbers, right? So that means now we'll all go out and I'll just join in now. But short of that, nothing's really changing. 
That's the problem. It's that we want revival and we want to be part of services where we say all that the Lord has said will we do. Just don't meddle with my day to day. We want to be part of services, Exodus chapter 24, where we're offering up sacrifice of worship. Just don't change anything on Monday. We want to be part of revival, but make sure that's revival of everybody else that surrounds us. Make sure that's revival of everybody uh, in the vicinity. Don't actually change anything in my life. Church, our nation, if it's ever going to see revival, that's because you and me look at Monday and say there's something that's going to need to change. It's that you and me look at life and say, what do I need to do differently to be yielded to God? And you know what that might mean? It might involve listening to some people we don't want to listen to. It might involve listening to a pastor when he gets up and opens the word of God and says, here's some things, some things that need to change. Here's some things that we need to do better at as a church and just pours out his pastoral heart to you guys. It might be that we get to the end of a message like that and say, I'm changing this. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we do that change. And you say, how do we do that? The fruit of the Spirit. Yield to the Holy Spirit, and He'll give it to us. What's at stake with all this? Nothing, short than the shorter, nothing less than the future of our families, our lives, and our nation. Whether or not we're willing to say, I'm not joking about my stubbornness anymore. I'm not talking about my stubbornness anymore. I'm putting my stubbornness down on the altar. I'm saying, enough is enough. God doesn't just have my actions. He has my heart. God doesn't just have my heart. He has my will in sacrificing that will. Because God said, that's what stopped the children of Israel from seeing real revival. That's what meant 45 days later they were still in a mess. It's because they, didn't, they sacrificed their actions, but they didn't sacrifice their will. And church, that will all determine whether what happened here in these, this building and that tent meant anything, is whether we've sacrificed our will to the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day. Lord, a serious message. Lord, a tough message, Lord, because I know that I struggle in this area probably more than anybody in this room. And Lord, I pray that you would, that you would break my heart, that you'd break my soul, that you'd break me down, that you'd break down my stubbornness. But Lord, you'd also do the same for everybody else in this room, that you'd get, get me to a place where my will is yielded to you. Lord, please give us meekness, and Lord, I pray that we'd be willing to give in to that. Lord, I don't know how everybody in this room needs to apply this message. I don't know what needs to change, what we need to do, but each person in this room, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would show them and that you'd give us, Lord, a blessed day. Lord, you'd give us a blessed week where we eat day in and day out. We say, I'm going to be done with that stiff-necked attitude. Lord, I'm allowing the Lord to, to work in my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Pastor.